welcome. Let's uh, let's open up our Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, today. We've been in a series. Uh, I got it. Yeah. We've been in a series that uh, we're going through the, the majesty, the mystery, and the mission of God. And the whole point of the series is just to take a, a moment in, in all of our personal formation and spiritual formation and all of our call to be the missionary people of God here in uh, Mesa and in the city and in our neighborhoods, we just wanted to take a, a time to be able to just gaze at the beauty and the glory of God. Because as a missionary people, we know that we can only um, um, work, the activity that we do is always going to be rooted in our identity. We can only work from our identity, not for it. And we know that we are what we behold, right? We are what we behold. And so we just want to take a moment to behold the glory of God, to take a look at him. And last week we talked about the majesty of God and seeing God in uh, the, the world around us, the, the Lord of creation. We, we looked at the God of history who has always acted powerfully and sovereignly over all of history and as he moves his redemptive plan forward. And then we looked at the God of salvation, Right? He's a saving God who um, is working in our lives to redeem us and reclaim us and um, remove the grip of sin from our own hearts, but also move us towards saving the whole world and all of redemption. And so we, we looked at the majesty of God. This week, we're going to look and we're going to see uh, the mystery of God. And, and this week's a little bit different because we're actually looking at things that are harder for us to actually see God in. Right? We know that God is present, he's real, he fills us with life, but how do you walk with an unseen God? And then on top of that, how do you walk with an unseen God in a broken world, right? When we look around and things aren't as they're supposed to be. And so we're going to lean into the mystery of God. So let me pray and, uh, and then we'll get started uh, talking about this. Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather. Lord, would you fill us with wisdom? Would you help us to see you in maybe clearer ways? God, would you help us to be a people that don't run from the things that we don't understand, but we lean into them and embrace you in the midst of them? God, we love you. God, would you fill up um, all that is lacking in my words tonight? God, would you illuminate truth by your spirit? In Christ's name, amen. So in 2011, I uh, was, uh, went to Haiti right after the earthquake. You might remember 2010, they had a massive earthquake, um, destroyed the city of Port-au-Prince. And uh, we brought a team out there. We had a church and an orphanage that was out there that we sponsored. And, and we brought a small team out there to do some repair work on the orphanage and to train pastors um, for the church. And um, Haiti was just devastated in this time. And during this time, there was tons of corruption, so we couldn't just send money, right, because money wires and transfers and banks were just filled with corruption. We couldn't even really bring materials, 
um, because we tried. We brought some materials, and they actually uh, stayed on the tarmac at the airport and were held hostage, basically, until we would pay a ransom for them from corrupt uh, leaders that were there. And so Haiti was just absolutely a mess. And during this time, things like voodoo ramped up. Right? People were turning to these voodoo priests. Right, They were, they were looking for answers. They were uh, looking for a sense of power and prosperity in, in this devastating time. And so uh, voodoo was ramping up. And so we would stay um, at this guest house. And at night, when we, would go to, when we would go to sleep, we would hear off in the distance these voodoo drums going on. And it's like one of the most ominous sounds that you can hear, right? You know that there is just these worship of foreign gods going on. You know these strange things that are going on in the background, and you would hear these drums like just going in the background. Well, on our third night there, we actually heard those drums, but it wasn't way out in the distance. It sounded like it was like right underneath us. We were on the third level of this guest house for the IMB, the the, uh, International Mission Board through... I used to be a Baptist, so don't hold that against me, right? Um, and it was, it was right there. And so we all come out and we look, and there's this giant bonfire going on. There's these drums beating. There is a pig that is tied to a tree. There's a young girl, probably about the ages of 13 or 14, just standing there in this white dress. And there's a circle of people just chanting. Couldn't understand what they were chanting, but they're just chanting this crazy thing. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So we go out there, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. We go down and ask one of the guards that spoke English that was was there that night, and we're like, what's going on? They're like, oh, that's a voodoo ritual. They're actually going to torture that pig so that that 14-year-old girl could be possessed by a demon and have a limited amount of blessing for their family. We're like, uh... No, they're not. Like, that is not going to happen. Like, we are not going to let that happen in that moment. And so, sure enough, they take this pig, they put it on this table, and they start whipping this pig, and it starts making this noise, and they're calling these demons down to try to come and possess this girl. And so we all get together, and we're like, me and my friend go down. We're like, we're going out there. The guards were like, no, we can't let you go out there. They will kill you. If you try to disrupt this thing, they will kill you. And so we didn't know what to do. We were like, we're going to sneak out. What are we doing? And so the five of us get on this balcony, and we just start praying. So we were right over it. We could see the whole thing down there. We could see the full-blown witch doctor, the voodoo priest, like dressed in his garb. And we just start praying over this, this situation that's going on. And as, their, uh, as our prayers started to get louder, their drum beats started to get louder. They recognized that we were having some sort of spiritual battle. So we were like singing worship songs over there and playing guitars, praying these prayers for two hours. We're on our faces. We're on our knees. We're like praying for God to do something, to intervene. And the situation is getting super intense. And all of a sudden, the youngest girl on our team is a daughter of one of our team members. She was about 15 years old. She prays this prayer. She says, Lord, do whatever it takes to interrupt what's going on. And she says, open up the heavens and let water pour down and put out that bonfire that that is the center of their ritual. And I kid you not, there wasn't a minute that passed that she said that, that we heard a crackle in the sky and the heavens opened up and it started pouring rain in the middle of a country that's constantly in a drought. Rains them out, 
everybody runs back inside the house and, uh, and ends the whole ritual that's there. It rains all night and all morning. I get out. I'm sitting on that balcony. We disrupted the thing, and I am just blown away that God answered that prayer. Me and my friend are talking about it. Like in the morning, we have our coffee, and we, we look up, and this uh, voodoo priest comes walking out of the back gate. He looks up at us, says something in his mouth, and gets in this taxi and goes away. Satan was defeated. It was a cool moment, right? And I was in awe, like the Lord answered a prayer that I never in a million years thought that he would answer. It was an absolute, one of those mind-blowing situations. I was in that moment, and I didn't think anything was going to happen, and something happened. One more story. Over Thanksgiving, I had a friend call, and he was struggling with um, depression, struggled his whole life with severe OCD. Almost every day of his life was miserable for him. He was a good dude, he loved Jesus, like really good guy, but life was miserable. And he was having one of those tough times where he was caught in depression. He wanted things to end and he gives me a call and I'm driving in my car, coming home from work and, um, and, and we just start talking and uh, I start encouraging him and I pray over him and, and we, we laugh, we cry on the phone, we connect, but I left that conversation positive that God heard our prayers and I was so stoked to be able to be um, some sort of sense of, of life and encouragement to my friend who was hurting in that moment. And then three weeks later, I get a call from his mom that tells me he lost the battle depression and took his own life. See, I have two prayers. One God. See, I, I, I prayed in a situation for a little girl that I didn't even know and asked God to do something that I didn't think he would do. And he answered that prayer and I was blown away. And then I pray to that same God and I ask him a prayer and I say a prayer that I was sure he would do. I was positive that he would answer that prayer. It was my friend, someone I loved dearly. And he seemingly didn't answer the prayer, at least not in the way that I thought he should in that moment. What do you do with that? Can, can we just stop and sit in the tension of the perplexity of worshiping the God that we worship, right? It's, there, there's a mystery there that all of us have experienced the confusion and frustration of not understanding God, right? We just, we don't understand him. Who knows the mind of God? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we, we, we worship every week a God that, that, that both um, captures us with his beauty, but confounds us with mystery. We, we, we worship a God who, who seemingly blesses us in certain seasons, but sometimes it feels like he's withholding from us and others, doesn't it? What do you do with God like that. See, when I was thinking about the mystery of God, I, I got brought back to this thing that, that, that you and I, in, in our 
creatureliness, we have a lust for certainty, don't we? Like, like we just do. And I, I started thinking about the garden, right? What was, what was the great lie in the garden? There was, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he says, hey, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God in knowing, right? You'll, you'll, you'll know, you'll have the mind of God. You'll be able to understand and define good and evil and see good and evil the way that God sees it. And we have this lust for certainty that oftentimes keeps us from relating to God whose nature is beyond our knowing. And oftentimes, because we cannot figure God out, because he's a mystery, our relationship with him is wonky. Sometimes it looks like just keeping him in arm's length. Right? We might go through the religious motions. We might do the religious things. We might be in, involved in things. We might even say religious prayers, but we're just, we have this relationship with God where we're just, we, we, we can't expect him to answer our prayers or to be present in our lives because we just can't stand being disappointed by a God we don't understand. And so it keeps distance between us. But what if I was to tell you that the same God of mystery, the same God that we can't understand is asking us as his people to embrace the mystery, to lean in in a certain way that, that maybe full understanding isn't what he's after and maybe it shouldn't be what we're after either. I want to read a quote to you. And it's, uh, it's by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he uses a lot of hyperbole, and sometimes he makes these like grand statements that need a little more nuance and truth, so don't get mad at me, I didn't write this, right? But listen, listen to what he says here. He says, the lack of mystery in our modern life is our downfall and our poverty. See, where people, we avoid mystery, right? It's hard, it's difficult. We don't like the pain of not knowing or the pain of being disappointed. But he, and then he says this, a human life is worth as much as the respect it holds for the mystery. Now, I don't believe that, but I know your human life is, is, is nuanced and, and every person has dignity and value, but I know what he's trying to say, right? Like there's something about embracing the mystery. And he says, if we, we retain the child in us to the extent that we honor the mystery of God, therefore children have open, wide awake eyes because they know that they are surrounded by the mystery. They are not yet finished with this world. They still don't know how to struggle along and avoid the mystery as we do. We destroy the mystery because we sense that there, that here we reach the boundary of our being because we want to be Lord over everything and have it at our disposal. And that's just what we cannot do with the mystery. Living without mystery means knowing nothing of the mystery of our own lives. Nothing of the mystery of another person. Nothing of the mystery of the world. It means passing over our own hidden qualities and those of others and the world. It means remaining on the surface, taking the world seriously only to the extent that it can be calculated and exploited. And not going beyond the world of calculation and exploitation. Living without mystery means not seeing the crucial process of life at all and even denying them in most situations. You see, this mysterious God oftentimes prevents us from actually, sorry, this mysterious God, right, 
oftentimes, because we can't figure him out, we end up keeping him at, at arm's distance, and we never really experience the life that he has. Our world doesn't leave room for mystery anymore. And we see it all around us, right? The technological revolution has pushed mystery out of the picture. I was telling a story the other day in, in the car, and we were driving, and, and I turn around, and I see my daughter, like, going on her phone, and I was like, are you fact-checking me? Like, I'm literally telling you a story. Like, like can't you just listen? Like, you're checking, you're fact-checking me right now, right? And isn't that the world we live in? Right? We, just, we, we have this lust for certainty. We need to know. And then there's even this one side of our culture that, that hates not knowing so much that, that a lot of people would rather believe a lie rather than sit in the tension of the unknown. Think about that. We, we hate saying, I don't know. Right? When someone comes to us a problem that we can't fix, we hate being able to say, I don't know. Let me just sit with you in it. See, and that's the world we live in is a world of distrust. That's what sin is. It's not merely a breaking of rules, but it's a breaking of trust. Did God really say? And repentance is a returning to or a restoring of trust to God. And if we are going to trust God, we have to embrace the mystery. So I want to read a, a passage in 2 Corinthians that talks about what this looks like. And it's this. 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 7. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now listen, we... We love that passage of scripture. We like to quote it, right, in times of uncertainty or in times of passion. We like to quote that. But the context of the scripture is Paul is saying, look, there's two types of wisdom in the world. There's a wisdom of this age, right, the wisdom that all of us have access to in our pockets, in our phones, Wikipedia, whatever, you read it, whatever news cycle that you listen to, all of us have this wisdom of this age around us. But there's this wisdom of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, no eye can actually use the wisdom of this world and even imagine what God has planned for us and how God's working. There's two things. And he says this, but God has revealed it to us, his people, by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truth and spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord 
that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. And, and here is what Paul's doing to the church. He's saying, I know that when we look at the world, when we look at circumstances, when we look at our own lives, when we try to figure things out and use the wisdom of this world, it doesn't make sense. We're going to be frustrated, separated from one another, distant from God. But if we actually can look to God's wisdom, if we can look to Christ things will begin to become clear and we don't have to figure out the mystery, but we can walk in it in a way that actually gives us life. See, embracing the mystery of God means embracing Christ. That's what this passage is saying. We have the mind of Christ. Listen to what Harold Sinkbell said in um, his book, Caring for Souls. He says, Christ Jesus is himself God's great mystery. In whom we are hidden, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In this man, Jesus, the disciples were in contact with the living God. He was their tangible link with eternity. But listen to this. Yet, the more the disciples came to know Jesus, the more they realized there was yet to discover. They weren't going to ever have it all figured out. His mystery. Re uh, revealed remains perpetually hidden yet in Jesus the almighty maker of heaven and earth came down from heaven to give his life to the world and the world has never been the same since and here's what I'm asking us to say every one of us struggle with understanding God we all have ways that we just don't understand God we we think he should act differently we think he should uh, respond in different ways to different situations. We wonder why he hasn't responded. And, and because we use the wisdom of the world, we do one or two things. We either create a God of a, in our own image that says God is either um, not all good and doesn't love us like he says he does, or God is not all powerful and actually can't do what we ask him to do. But that's the wisdom of this world. When we look at God through the wisdom of this world, those are our only two choices. But when we look at God through Christ, everything changes. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take time looking, embracing the mystery by looking at Jesus. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest with you about my stuff, okay? So I have areas that frustrate me about God. There's, there's things that are going on in the world. There's things that have happened in my own life that I have a hard time understanding that frustrate me about God. So this might not be yours. You're going to have your own categories, but I want to walk through mine and see if you can maybe relate and you can fill in your own categories. So here's, here's my four things that frustrate me or, or that I don't understand God. And one is suffering. Suffering is a hard thing to really understand God in. Two is seasons, waiting, time. I, I, I really have a hard time understanding God in that. The, the, the third is obscurity. Why, does, why do the most beautiful people seem to live their lives in obscurity, but it's the people I dislike the most that have the biggest platforms? Right? Rise and fall of Mars Hill. Um, those things frustrate me. 
And then grace. Man, grace is such a hard thing to understand. Man, it, it's, it's crazy. And so I want to go through those things. And, and the first thing that we're going to talk about is just this idea of suffering. Man, I look around the world, and, and, and I know we have people that, that use this as an excuse. But, man, how could such a good God allow so much suffering to happen in the world? Right? And, and when you're Christians, we, we, we make up all kinds of things, right? We try to make up excuses for God. Well, this is what he's doing. This is what we're we, try to, we try to like stand in the gap for God and be a good apologist where we'll make our arguments for why God does this and why the world is this way. And listen, I know all the arguments. I know we live in a broken world, but it's still hard for me. When I experience suffering in my own life, it's still hard for me, right, to to figure out why, God, do you allow this? Or why do you allow suffering to happen to that person or that person? But then that person seems to live a life free of suffering. Am I alone here? I feel like I'm just talking to myself or am I preaching to the choir or something? Yeah, it's hard. It's just hard. And so what does it look like for us? The only thing I can do if I want to embrace the mystery is I have to cling to Jesus. That's what that passage has told us. Like, we have the mind of Christ. And so the only thing that I can do is look and see how did Jesus relate to suffering? How did he deal with suffering in the world? Who was this God who came and put on flesh? What was his relationship to suffering? And here's the first thing I see is when I look at Jesus, I see a person that was willing to enter into the suffering of others. Right? When Jesus came to the earth, he entered into the suffering of the others. And as I read scripture, what I begin to realize is that the Bible never, and, and this is from Paul Tripp, the Bible never presents suffering as an abstract idea, but puts it right in front of us in blood and guts drama of real human experience. The scriptures don't tell a story of, of some fantastical faith, right? Where you believe in Jesus and everything's good, right? Or you follow God and every, everything's just good. No, we live in a cursed and a broken world. And it tells a story about a God who is willing to enter into the suffering of our world. How do I embrace that? See, God never looks down on suffering. He never mocks suffering. He never belittles it. Scripture is a story of a God who hears our cries, who invites us to take refuge in him in the midst of our suffering and promises a future where suffering will no longer be a part of the story. See, the great scandal of the gospel is that God puts on flesh and enters into our suffering world. Embracing that. And I'm always blown away when I'm frustrated at God <laughs> about the suffering that exists. And yet, he's a God who orients his whole life towards the sufferer. Jesus oriented his whole life towards the sufferer, the, the outcast, the poor, the disabled. He touched lepers. He befriended prostitutes. He cast out demons and discipled tax collectors. He invites doubters to taste and see. He says explicitly that he came for the sick and not the well. See, as I begin to look at Jesus' life and his willingness to enter into the suffering of others, it does something to me. See, Jesus is fully engaged in suffering, fully present. He embraces it fully with his whole life. And it's not a mystery to him. 
And this is my God and all the wisdom and the knowledge. It's not a mystery to him. He didn't spend his life avoiding it like we do, right? We spend our whole lives avoiding suffering in every way. We shield ourselves from suffering. We don't want to enter into the sufferings of others because we hate this idea of a good God in a suffering world. But yet, isn't that exactly what Jesus came to do, is to enter into the suffering of others? The second thing we see in Jesus is not only did Jesus enter into the suffering of others, but Jesus was willing to suffer himself. Jesus was tempted by sin. He was mocked, betrayed, spit on, lied about, lied to, ultimately beaten, shamed, and put to death on a Roman cross. Think about our God who is willing to suffer as you wrestle with suffering. One of my, uh, one of the funniest stories to me is when um, James and um, Peter and like the sons of Zebedee, they're on, they're on a boat and, and they're going out at sea and um, the sea gets really rough and Jesus is just like sleeping, right? And, and they freak out, right? And, and they're like, what, like, what is going on? Like, Jesus, wake up. Can't you see, like, we're about to die? And then one of them, I, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the disciples looks at Jesus and he says, don't you even care we're about to die? And, and I love that. And I'm like, yeah, like, Jesus, here you are. Like, you have control over the winds and the waves. Like, we saw you, like, talk to demons and walk on water and feed 5,000 and raise the dead. We've seen you do these things. And here we are in this whole thing. Don't you even care that we're about to die? And do you know where Jesus was headed on that boat? To the cross. Jesus cares about our suffering. So much so, he was willing to enter into it and suffer himself so that one day we would be fully free from sin, Satan, oppression, from suffering of the world. He cares about our suffering. The great mystery of suffering is really not where is God, although it feels like it. The great mystery of suffering is that the majestic God over all creation, the one through whom all things were created, entered into our suffering and suffered himself for the sake of the world. See, when I look to Jesus, the mystery of suffering becomes maybe a little more clear, maybe a little less daunting. So I want to spend a moment at the end of this and just reflect for you. I want to give you a prayer. We're just going to take two minutes. I just want you to reflect on this prayer. Where... Do you see Jesus in your own suffering or in the suffering of the world around us? And where can you embrace him in the mystery of suffering? Here's a prayer for you.
loving Lord and Heavenly Father, I offer up today all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, and all that I suffer to be yours today and forever. Give me grace, Lord, to do all that I know of your holy will. Purify my heart, sanctify my thinking, correct my desires, teach me in all of today's works and trouble to respond with honest praise, simple trust, and instant obedience that my life may be in truth a living sacrifice by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, my master and my all. Amen. So we see Jesus in suffering. The next thing I want to look at is, is Jesus in seasons. I think one of the hardest thing for me is wondering why Jesus doesn't hurry up his program, right? Waiting. Why do things come slowly? Why are we waiting? Why are, are there seasons? And, and, and part of it is the culture we live in, right? We live in a culture of convenience, right? Where we can have whatever we want, whenever we want. We really don't know how to lean into seasons, right? If, if I want an avocado in the middle of December, I can have one. Right, Because I can just fly it in from a country that grows avocados and I can have whatever I, I want. People in, in, in different times and different places didn't have to. They had to eat whatever was growing at that time. And whether it was just grains or certain vegetables or whatever they did, we, just, we have a culture of convenience and we hate waiting on God to work. It's especially here in Arizona, like leaning into seasons, right? It's like, it's like nice shorts and, and you know, Crocs all the time. Hopefully you don't wear Crocs. No, I'm just kidding. They're really comfortable. Um, but I think it's really hard because we have this limitless God, but he creates a world with limits and boundaries. Right? We have this limitless God who creates a world with limits and boundary. Living with God in his world means being limited creatures dependent on his limits and his boundaries, his seasons and his time. In Ecclesiastes, it, it talks about there, there, there's a season for every activity under the sun. And listen to some of the stuff it says. It's honest. Right? There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to be uprooted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. And you're like, whoa, David, what do you mean? Like, I don't know about you, but like, man, there, there's times where, where certain things need to die in my life and in my own thing. And then there's other times where certain areas of my life need spent healing. There's a time to tear down. And there's a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. It's some Marie Kondo stuff right there. You guys didn't get that joke. It's okay. Time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate time for war and a time for peace. See, what, what it's saying is that God has created a world that, that has boundaries and timings and seasons. It's not just instant convenience, get whatever we want. In a world of instant access, be still and know that I am the Lord is difficult. 
I know what it's like to go through a tough season. Tara and I, it seems like we've been going through a season of, of, of this four-year just like drought and God's just grading and he's not like any relief. Like there's no like, like room to breathe or a little sense of like, oh, maybe things are getting, it's like, no, it's just that he's like has his grip around us and we're just waiting in the midst of it, waiting on God to act and work and do and reveal And how do you sit in that season and know that he is Lord? I read something the other day. It said the modern American life lives at a pace, even in COVID, that borderlines madness. The human heart was not meant to carry the weight and operate at 5,000 RPMs all the time. There are seasons that are baked into creation itself that are important to lean into. Seasons of pain and seasons of joy. Seasons of confusion and doubt and seasons of clarity and understanding. Especially as Christians, we need to lament, but we also need to rejoice. We need to act, but we also need to sit and wait on the Lord. See, God is more concerned about the substance of something than the expedience of it. Here's a prayer of waiting. Let's give ourselves two minutes to reflect. Where are you in a season that God's asking you to lean into that you might be trying to escape from? present in my waiting, O Lord, that I might also be present in it. As I am a vessel, let me not be like a wet paper cup full of steaming frustration, carelessly sloshing about unpleasantness on those around me. Rather, let me be like a communion chalice, reflecting the silvered beauty of your light, brimming with an offered grace. Isn't that a beautiful vision when we're waiting? We're frustrated that God's not acting or doing or that we're even going through that season and time that we could actually be filled with grace. One more, I'll make this one quick. Jesus in obscurity. When we lean into the mystery of how God works that we see Jesus went to towns that nobody liked and brought life to the peoples other people ignored or avoided. That that Jesus self identifies as gentle and lowly that we see that God is not looking or or seeking influencers, but he's seeking worshipers, right? Like Jesus is in the unseen places of the world. A couple weeks ago, I got to go on a tour of the city and I met a a lady named Linda. She had worked in an underserved community. She's at the first Pentecostal church of Phoenix in South Phoenix. And and she, she has worked for 40 years for this church and she literally takes us on a tour and she takes us up and down one street maybe eight houses on it seven houses on it and she was proud 
She said, for 40 years, I've come here, I've served these neighbors, I've cleaned up this neighborhood, I've provided service for the people that are here, and this street was like pristine, right? It was beautiful. It was this little oasis. One block on this side, gang violence, prostitution, drugs. One block on this side, gang violence, prostitution, drugs. Nobody knows about this one street. No news articles are writing about this one street, but Linda gave 40 years of her life so that the kingdom of heaven could come on one block. And I never knew her name before two weeks ago. And it was beautiful. That's where Jesus finds things when we as a people are looking to be noticed or to do something amazing for the Lord. Jesus works his best work in places of obscurity, of the unnoticed places. We're going to do one more prayer, two minutes on this prayer, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Blessed be these hands that have touched life. Blessed be these hands that have nurtured creativity. Blessed be these hands that have held pain. Blessed be these hands that have embraced with passion. Blessed be these hands that have tended gardens. Blessed be these hands that have closed in anger. Blessed be these hands that have cleansed, washed, mopped, changed diapers. Blessed be these hands that Hold the promise of the future. Blessed be the works of your hands, O Holy One. And then finally, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Jesus and grace. And I don't know about you, grace is a hard thing for me to understand. And inside, I I feel like I have to prove myself to God and others. I want to earn his love. I want to try to clean myself up and I want to try to um, look good before God and others. And Jesus, one, he doesn't respect that because he's a friend of sinners. He doesn't look down on those who struggle. He doesn't look down on those who are in pain. He doesn't look down on those who are caught up in sinful attitudes and behaviors. He's a friend of sinners. And he invites sinners to the table he sits with peoples whose lives are messy, and if we allow our sins to define us more than Jesus' love, we'll always be distant from him. So we get caught up in a vicious cycle of pretending and performing instead of walking in freedom, worship, life, and obedience. And I don't know about you, but I, I tend to live in what I've heard it called is, is a a cosmic game of he loves me and he loves me not, right? Like he loves me when I'm doing good. Oh no, I'm failed. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Jesus loves you. He loves us. And and if we allow, if we don't allow the grace of God to define us, we will keep ourselves at arm's length because we're never gonna be clean enough to enter into his arms ever. But he says, come as you are. 
Jesus is a friend of the sinners. He says, welcome to the table. And every week when we gather for communion, we're remembering that it's not by our efforts or our deeds or our works or missionary activity or how well we are doing in our own lives emotionally or physically or in, in righteousness or unrighteousness, but it's about Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. And so we come to the table and we receive his blood and his bread. And so, Monsieur Mesa, we're gonna spend uh, just a moment coming and taking communion together. And so if you could come up and take the elements, but we're going to take it together. I'm going to read a prayer um, for us uh, together. But come and grab communion. The table is open, and we will take communion together as we lean into Jesus.